At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be continuing a series that we began a few weeks ago called The New Way. Well, we've seen in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, the new way of Jesus as contrasted with the old way of the law. How the New Testament way that is identified around Jesus is actually superior to the Old Testament way as described in the Scripture. And so we, we rest our lives on the better promises of Christ. And we've been seeing that in light of Paul's argument that he was giving to his friends in Galatia and its significance for us over the last number of weeks. Today we're going to continue that study by looking at the first seven verses of Galatians chapter 4. So that's where we'll be this morning. But before we get to those verses, I want to think with you for just a moment about school. And I want you to do kind of an internal audit of your life and think of how many schools have you attended. I mean as a student. Some of you as, as teachers have done even more. But as a student, how many schools have you attended? For me personally, I've attended six different schools in my life, beginning all the way back with Hoover Elementary School and progressing all the way through Dallas Theological Seminary and six schools between those edges. Now, when I think about that experience and when you think about your experience, you probably notice a progression in your education. When you began in elementary school, you learned the ABCs and the one, two, threes, a shout out to the Jackson Five. Right? That's, that's what you learned in that era of your life. I mean, it was appropriate that you would learn that. But as you learned the ABCs and the one, two, threes and how to read and how to do basic math in elementary school, it was not an end unto itself. There was a purpose behind that education. You learned your ABCs, you learned your one, two, threes so that you could apply them later on in other projects. Those things that I learned in elementary school, I actually was able to employ in physics class as I took math and used it to understand how the world is designed. And I learned those things in ABC so that I would eventually be able to read great literature and ultimately be able to write dissertations. There was a progression in my education, and no doubt, friends, there was a progression in yours as well. And correctly understanding that each of those eras of our education were given for a purpose to prepare us for something else helps us to rightly understand their value. Because maturity is found not in just knowing the basics. Maturity is found in our ability to correctly appropriate those basics for the task at hand. And so we think about our spiritual maturity and what God is doing for us as he grows our faith in him and our love for others. God is maturing us, friends. If you are in Christ, you are being matured. But the process by which God is educating us and empowering us to our maturity moves in waves. And specifically, when we think of all that God has done from the beginning, God was doing different things in different eras, preparing humanity for their growth from this phase to the next. It's as if Paul is saying there were some ABCs and some one, two, threes that we needed to learn inside of the law, but the purpose was not for us just to know our ABCs. The purpose was for us to ultimately be able to appropriate them correctly 
in the era in which we now live. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, as we find how God is maturing us in Christ and how His work in changing our identity and empowering us with His Spirit plays into that. We're going to see that in Galatians chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, you might turn there to Galatians 4, 1 through 7. We're going to spend the balance of our time in these verses today. I want to read them for us, and then after I read them, we'll back up and make a couple of observations today. Paul writes and says this, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, friends, in those seven verses, we're going to see two things today that are important for us to remember as we think of the maturation that God is working in our lives. The first thing that we need to see is this. Don't mistake legalism for maturity. Don't mistake legalism for maturity. Legalism, some list of things that we are to do or not do, that somehow the adherence to a long list or making that list even longer is equivalent to our maturity in Christ. Paul's clear in the first three verses that legalism is not equal to our maturity. Now, where do we see that? Well, it's helpful for us to begin by, once again, orienting ourselves to the things that we have already heard inside of this series, the things that Paul mentioned in Galatians chapter 3. Now, one of the things that we think about in, that we saw in, in Galatians 3 that creates the context for these verses in Galatians 4 is that in Christ, we are all sons. We saw this last week. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, as Galatians 3, 26 tells us. That our identity has changed from a slave to sin to a son of God. Unless we think that's a typo, Paul was explicitly calling us here sons for a very specific purpose. Not to exclude women but to remind us that if we are in Christ, then we are a son because the sons in that day and age were the ones who were the heirs, the recipients of the promise. And so if we are in Christ, not only has our identity changed, but also we have come into a great spiritual fortune in Christ. The promises that God gave to Abraham are available to all who are in Christ. And he says that in verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And we saw last week how all of those blessings are available to anyone who is in Christ, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your gender, regardless of your socioeconomic status. There is neither Jew nor Greek, he says in verse 28. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the context of these verses is talking about the amazing blessing that is available to all who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, 
after making this statement at the end of chapter 3, it's helpful for us to also remember that throughout these chapters, Galatians 3 and 4, Paul is talking about the spiritual history of the people of God. And he identifies three different eras of this history. There was the era, if you remember, that he talks about the beforehand gospel era. That was the era in the time of Abraham, the time before the law was given to Moses, where God was initiating with people. And God said to Abram, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And he goes on and on and on. There was that beforehand gospel era and Abraham believed what God was saying and God credited it to him as righteousness. And then there was the law era. This was the era that began with the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses and continued all the way through what we know of as our Old Testament era and concluded when Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he ushered in through his life, death, and resurrection a new era, the Jesus gospel era, an era that is still going on today, an era that we are still living inside. But what Paul was doing in these this section in, in Galatians 3 and 4 is he is basically trying to explain to the Galatians why it's inappropriate for them who are now in Christ to float back to the era of the law. See, there were some opponents to Paul's teaching who were arguing that the Galatians needed to do just that. They were saying, Galatians, it's great that you have trusted Jesus, but you really have to go back and examine all of these Old Testament sacrifices and, and festivals and ceremonies. You need to make sure you do all of those things as well. And Paul is writing to say that this era of the law has been concluded. It's been wrapped up. We're in a new era now. So it's inappropriate for us to float back to the era of the law. Paul made this argument throughout this section in a number of different analogies. He called the, the law a prison warden back in chapter 3, verse 22. He said the law was given basically to convict us of our sin and to keep us held in bondage until the time that judgment came. In other words, the law had the ability to convict us. It didn't have the ability to save us. Then he goes on and he says that the law is like a pedagogue. It was like a tutor given to discipline us in the direction of Jesus. In other words, God's intention wasn't that we stayed in prison. His intention was that we be tutored in the direction of Christ, that we would see in the law and our inability to live it out, that we needed to find someone to save us. And that someone was Jesus. So the law is a prison warden. The law is a pedagogue pointing us to Christ. But in these verses that we're going to see today, he uses another analogy. And he says here that the law is also like a guardian or a manager or a trustee. Now, where does he say that and what does he mean? Well, let's look a little more in depth at these verses. He begins in verse 1 and he says... I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, what he's saying is that even someone who is a child of a very rich person, they don't have access to their father's riches until an appointed time. Now, this time, under that time, though they might have had a promise that one day they would have something, they didn't have it yet. 
And until that time came about, there were guardians and managers who looked over those resources for them. Now, we might look to a modern example to help make sense of this. And the best one I can find is Lisa Marie Presley. Now, who is Lisa Marie Presley's father? Elvis, right? So Elvis was her, her dad, but Lisa Marie was only nine when Elvis died. When, when Elvis died, he gave his entire estate to Lisa Marie with this caveat. She did not have access to it until she turned 25. So for 16 years, Lisa Marie was the owner of everything but had access to none of it as she lived in light of that promise. And during that time, managers and guardians oversaw those resources. And they saw it mature from, I think it was $9 million in value when she was nine to $150 million by the time she was 25. So that was a good decision by the father, right? And what Paul is saying in in light of this is he said, the era of the law is an era where the people of God had a promise that one day God was going to give them something great, but they didn't have it yet. The law was like a guardian or a manager that helped organize the situation and do some different things for a time, but but it did not give them access to the riches of their heavenly Father. Those riches, that wealth, was something that was designated for a later time. It was designated for the Jesus gospel era. Now, given that, the law was this, this guardian, this manager, this trustee, What else do we learn about the law from these verses? Well, what we learn is that the law during that time was a representation of the elementary principles of the world. Now, what are the elementary principles of the world? What's what's Paul talking about here? Well, this idea, first of all, of elementary principles, that phrase in the original language actually means things that are set side by side, and it refers to often the ABCs and the one, two, threes. That's literally where it came from. That's where the Jackson 5 got it. It was right here inside of this verse. This is this idea of the elementary principles. Now, when it says the elementary principles of the world, it means that this world is run by some basics. Now, when we think about those basics that the world is running on, there are a number of basics that we might turn to, things like gravity or, or things like uh, the makeup of water, some of those kinds of things. But he's not talking about scientific formulas when he says this. We'll see next week that the, in, in the overall context, he's talking about the elementary religious principles of the world. And so this world has some ABCs and some one, two, threes of religion. And those ABCs and one, two, threes of religion are something that characterized all of us in the time before Christ. He says that we were children enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, who is the we referring to there? It's referring to, of course, Paul. That's what the we means. He includes himself. And Paul's background was what? Jewish. But he's also referring to the Galatians. That's also where the we comes from. And the Galatians' background was primarily what? Gentile, non-Jewish. 
And so what Paul is saying is he says, in this era that was the law, everyone, either from the Jewish background or from the Gentile background, their religions shared some commonalities. There were some elementary principles that were governing their thoughts and their life. Now, what were those elementary principles? Well, those elementary principles were the same elementary principles that lie behind most religion today. It's the you need to's, you should's, you can't, stop that's, right? All of those kinds of statements inside of religion. Those are the ABC's. Those are the one, two, threes. And Paul says all of those statements of what we ought to be doing, all of those statements about what we ought to avoid, those are like the ABC's of the principles of this world. But if all we have is those principles of what we should and should not do, we will find ourselves, Paul said, enslaved. Now, why would he say such a thing? Well, the reason why he says such a thing is because regardless of how we define the list, we can't keep it. Think about all of the different religions of the world. They've all got a list. And if you were to go and talk to someone from any of those religious backgrounds and say, what are you supposed to do? And they would say, we're supposed to do X, Y, and Z. And then if you were to follow up and say, well, how are you doing in light of that? If they're honest, at some point they'd say, not very well. There's a long way to go. And that's true regardless of the religion. That's true even in the religion that God the Father gave to the Old Testament people. It defined a standard that they could not attain. So whatever your list is, Paul says, if all we have is a list, we find ourselves enslaved. We might have the hope of something better, but we don't have it in our grasp. This is the reality of religion. Now, before we go any further, I think it's helpful for us to maybe take this and to anchor it to something a little more recent and current for us. And so I, I want us to, to look at that great Oklahoma theologian, Blake Shelton, and what Blake has to say about this. Now, Blake Shelton has a new song that's out called Bible Verses, and part of that song says this. He says, I got a King James in the dresser, and I take it out sometimes, but Lord knows I ain't measured up to what's inside. And they say that that's okay, but I keep praying for the day that I can open up the good book and heaven don't look like it's out of reach. When it feels like those apostles are giving me the gospel and not the third degree, I just want to read like Bible verses and not the Bible verses me. Now, whether Blake wrote that or someone wrote it for him, I think there's something that he understands. And what he understands is the law is like the Bible versus me. What the law does is it sets the standard that we cannot attain. And if that's all there was, if that's all there is, if that's all there is to your religion, then, then you are here today basically under the pile with no hope of getting up. Or you might convince yourself that you can get up only to be knocked down again. See, friends, that is the spin cycle of religion. But Blake is not the only one who's talked about this. Given some words and context from him, let's look now to a couple of expressions from New Testament scholars to help us take this to the next level. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, legalism then is not a step toward maturity. 
See, this is what we think, right? We think that legalism is a step toward maturity. If I just get a long list, a longer list, a better list, and if I do all of those things, then suddenly I'm going to be more mature. But legalism is not a step toward maturity. It's a step back into childhood. The law was not God's final revelation. It was but the preparation for that final revelation in Christ. It's important that a person know his ABCs because they are the foundation for understanding all of the language. But the man who sits in a library and recites the ABCs instead of reading the great literature that is around him is showing that he is immature and ignorant, not mature and wise. Under the law, the Jews were children in bondage, not sons enjoying liberty. See, friends, if we take the law and that's all that we have, we just recite the ABCs. We're not appropriating it correctly for God's intended purpose that he has in our lives. And it's no mistake that, that so often we take something good that God has given us, like the law, and we twist it into a different purpose because there is a spiritual battle that is going on around us. And I believe that one of the things that Satan wants to do in us is he wants to distract us and twist God's intended purpose of the law. John Stott gets to this point when he says this. He says, God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. But Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage, there's no escape. Friends, in, in all of these words that we have seen here, it just reminds us of the limitations of the law. And it reminds us that maturity is, is not found in legalism. It's found in something And so if you are here today and you're in that spin cycle of religion where you just have, you hear the law, you say, I'm going to do better, and you walk out and don't, and you think that that's all that there is, know that there is something better. There's a way to maturity that goes beyond a new list. And that way of maturity has to do with a transformation of our souls and a regeneration of our lives. And we see that in the next four verses when Paul says this. Maturity lives out what God puts in. Maturity lives out what God puts in. What what does maturity look like? Maturity is not just a new list. Maturity is a new identity and access to the Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us to live out what God has called us to. This is what maturity looks like, increasingly living into that reality of our new identity in Christ. Now, where do we see that inside of these verses? Well, the the first place that we see it is right here at the beginning when he talks about this transformation that happens at the fullness of time. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Remember, that era of the law would end, he said back in verse 3, at the time that was appointed by the Father. So when did that time come? Well, when Paul said that to the Galatians, they understood that language. Because in that culture, there were definitive points where people went from boys to men. It just happened. There was this this moment where they were 
recognized as a full son, an heir according to the family fortune. And it happened at different ages for different people in the first century. In the Jewish culture, they had that happen when the son turned 12. It's the idea of the bar mitzvah, right? The son turns 12 and they would receive the rights of sonship. They would go from a child to a man. The Greeks had a different date. It was when they turned 18. The Romans had a different date. It was somewhere between the age of 14 and 17 at the time determined by the father. And that way, it's similar to Lisa Marie, right? It was a time determined by her father when she turned 25 that she would have access to the family fortune. And in the same way, there was a time appointed by the father when a transition would happen from the era of the law to the Jesus gospel era. Well, that time that was appointed by the father was the time when Jesus came. When he was born in Bethlehem, when he lived his life, when he died on the cross, and when he rose from the dead. That is the hinge point of history. That is the transition from the law era to the gospel era, the era in which you and I now live. And so this time has now come. And so the Jesus gospel era is what is available to the Galatians because they're living on the other side of this. But friends, it's also what is available to us. The fullness of time has come. You think about the, the, the law era, it had accomplished all that God had intended it to accomplish. It was completely full of that meaning and purpose. And at that point, when it was full, God was done with it, and he was going to work in the Jesus gospel era from that point forward. It wasn't take your pick between two ways. There was the way, and that way was the Jesus way. And it's the same way that you and I have to access God as well at the fullness of time. Now, this idea of the fullness of time certainly talks about the end of the law era, but also there were a number of other factors that were happening in the world at that time that made this the perfect time for Jesus to come. Think about the the world in the first century was experiencing what is known as the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. What that means is, for the first time in a long time, there was travel that could happen between areas and and regions and countries so that the gospel could go from the Middle East to Rome and be in the same worldly peace so it could flow freely in those areas. There was a, a common language that was spoken at that time, the Greek language, so that they could communicate the gospel in a language that people understood. There were roads that had been constructed by the Romans throughout the Roman Empire so that they could walk and travel from place to place and and present this good news message of Jesus. And not only that, there's the spiritual preparation of what God had done through the law era. But at the fullness of time, at just the right moment in human history, God sent His Son to make it possible for us to not just have a promise of something good, but to us to have an experience of it. Because when Jesus came, he was born of a woman. He was born under the law for the purpose of redeeming those who were under the law. He was born of a woman. He was born of Mary, fully God and fully man. And he was born in the era of the law. Think about it this. Jesus was one of the last babies born in the era of the law. Not the last, but one of the last. He was in the last generation of those born under the law. 
And he was born under the law for the purpose of redeeming all of us out from under the law to something better. Now, you think about that in light of what God did in salvation history. We're familiar with what happened at the time of the Exodus. Now, what happened at the time of the Exodus was God's people were slaves to a nation. You remember what that nation was? Egypt, right? Egypt was oppressing Israel as their slaves. And so God rose up a deliverer to deliver Israel out from underneath Egypt. Well, who did God rise up? Somebody who was fully Jewish, but also somebody who was raised in whose house? Pharaoh's house. Somebody who was raised under Egypt. So God used Moses to liberate Israel. And I think in a way, there's a little bit of a hint of that here. God took Jesus, who was born under the law, to redeem those of us who would otherwise be under the law so that we might have a new access to God, so that we might have a new way. It would not just be a hope, and it would not just be a list, but it would be a transformation of our lives and a new identity. That new identity gives us the opportunity to become sons of God, to be adopted as sons. And it's, it's important for us to, to see that when he uses the word son here, and you take it in light of the full context, he's not talking about a juvenile son. He's talking here about an adult son, because it was the adult sons who were the heirs. It was the adult sons that had access to the wealth of the father. And friends, if you are in Christ, then you are adopted into God's family, not as a child awaiting something in the future, but as an adult son with access to the riches of God now. That's the point of this passage. Now, Wearsby helps us make sense of this when he says this. He says, when a sinner trusts Christ and is saved, as far as his condition is concerned, he's a spiritual babe who needs to grow. But as far as his position is concerned, he's an adult son who can draw on the father's wealth and who can exercise all the wonderful privileges of sonship. Now, this is an important distinction for us to see. Because sometimes when we talk about our position in Christ, we forget that we're still in process. Right? We talk about our position, we forget that we're in process. And we begin to think that None of this is is real, because if we look at our lives right now, we see a gap between where we want to go and where we are. And if we've walked with Jesus for any period of time, we can see a gap between where we are now and where we were then, because God is growing and developing us. That is what he's talking here about our our growth that happens in 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 our Christian life. But our position before God is set as an adult son of God from the beginning. And this is why that's so important. It's so important because it means that our identity has already shifted if we have trusted in Christ. And it means that we have access to the Holy Spirit to drive this progression and growth that God is calling us to. Why is our maturity not just a list? It's not just a list because God has changed our identity and God has given his spirit to empower us to be a different person than we would be otherwise. This is the hope that we have in Christ. Now, when we think about that, we think about the gift of the Spirit. He says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
Now, often when we talk about the Holy Spirit coming into our lives at the moment that we trust in Christ, we talk about that as it relates to the power that it gives us to live out our Christian experience. And that is an important reality and something that we will talk about more in depth when we get to chapter 5. But in this context, I think Paul is giving something else to us. He's reminding us that when we trust Christ and our identity shifts from being a slave to being a son, that at that moment, God sends his spirit into our lives to connect us to him forever. So that when we trust in Christ, not only does, do we have a name change, son instead of slave, but also we have a true and real identity change where God has sent his spirit inside of us crying out to him, daddy, daddy. That's what God has done for us. He has transformed our lives and given us his spirit to connect us to him forever. And so if you have trusted in Christ, know that there is something inside of you that is, that is leaning and longing towards God because he is your father as marked by the presence of his spirit in your life. Now, given all of that, we need to be reminded of two important things. What we've seen in these verses is that apart from God sending his son, we would still be slaves. If God the Father had not sent God the Son to die on the cross for our sins, then we would still be enslaved to sin, still waiting judgment from God. That's where we would be. But God did not leave us there. He gave us an opportunity. He sent His Son to die for us. And we've seen that apart from God sending His Spirit, we would still be young children awaiting the promise. If God had not sent His Holy Spirit to indwell our lives then we would be like Lisa Marie awaiting that 25th birthday, awaiting God to do the great work where we would have access to God's riches. But because we are in Christ, and because God sent the Son to die for us, and because he sent his Spirit to live inside of us, we have access to the riches of God today. The transformation is occurring in our lives even now. This is why he concludes in verse 7 with this statement, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, as we prepare to wrap up this message, I want to just make a comment about vows. You know, as, as, a, as a pastor, I have the privilege of being a part of a number of weddings. And I have a very simple thing that I commit to all brides and grooms before I marry them. And that is this, I will not surprise you at your wedding. And so when you are going to stand up and commit your life to a set of vows in the presence of God and these witnesses, you need to know what you're committing your life to. So that you should not ever be at a wedding and getting ready to exchange your vows. And then I say something and they turn to me and go, wait, what? No, 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 I, I didn't commit to that. Let's, let's wait. No, they need to know in advance what they're committing their lives to. And so I give a Word document in advance for them to see before they commit their lives to that. Now, I say that because I'm going to ask you to make a vow or a commitment in just a moment. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me a set of statements if they are consistent with the desire of your heart, if they're consistent with what you believe. But I want to walk through them first so that you're able to see them and understand them before we say them together. The first statement is that I have trusted Jesus as my Savior. 
This is a question for each of us to ask. Have I trusted in Christ as my Savior? For some, that might have been something that happened years ago. For others of you, it might be something you're considering right now, and you're right on the edge, and you're thinking, I I think I do believe that. Well, this might be the first opportunity for you to express publicly who you're trusting for your salvation, that it's Jesus' death that paid the penalty for your sins, and that his life gives you the hope of life eternal. So have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? The second statement, God sent his Spirit to live in me. God does not just send his Spirit to live in some, but he sends his Spirit to live in all who are in Christ. And so if you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then know that it's not just forgiveness that you got. It's the Holy Spirit that you got as well. And right now, as you sit there, God's Holy Spirit resides in your life, connecting you to God forever. God sent his spirit to live in me. Third statement, I am no longer a slave, but a son. Your identity has changed. No longer known by your sin. No longer enslaved and chained to your sin. But now identified as a son of God. An heir according to promise. And then lastly, I will live in light of my new identity. God's desire is that we live a life that we put on, even as we began this service reading Ephesians 4, and even as we looked last week at the concept of putting on Christ, that we might live a life consistent with our new fashion in Him. Now, friends, these statements, we're going to have an opportunity to say them together. And so I would ask you to stand. And if these statements are consistent with what you believe, I want you to say them after me. But I want to pray for us first. Father God, we are so thankful for this great truth. We're so thankful for the transformation that you make possible, that you have not left us enslaved to sin. You've not left us just a to-do list, but you have gone about transforming our souls. You've gone about giving us a new life, in Christ. You've given us your spirit to empower us to transformation. We are humbled by that, Father, and we are thankful. Apart from your work, we would be nothing. But with your work, we are a son of you. That means something. We're so grateful and so thankful that that offer and opportunity is available to all. So as we come together now, our eyes up, we look at these statements. If these represent the desire of your heart, would you repeat after me, whether you're in the room here or even at home? I have trusted Jesus as my Savior. God sent his Spirit to live in me. I am no longer a slave but a son. I will live in light of my new identity. Friends, that's a beautiful sound for us to hear, a reminder of what God has done for us and where he is calling us to go. As we leave this place, may we live in light of these truths.